0: Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, brought to you by New Narrative. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and commentary from around Southeast Asia. I'm your host, PJ Tham. In this episode, we meet a group of old leftists who gather every year in Singapore to keep the memory of the anti-colonial movement alive. We examine the effect Vietnam's tourism boom is having on its rural communities. We speak with a Cambodian feminist about the challenges of advocating for gender equality from the grassroots. And we hear from a corporate ethics consultant who reflects on the Thai government's attempt to crack down on slavery in its fishing industry. Perhaps most central to the success of Singapore's independence movement in the 1950s and 60s was the Chinese educated working class. But despite their contributions, activists on the political left were betrayed by the party they helped get elected, the People's Action Party. Many of these leftists were arrested and detained without trial. Today, most Singaporeans have little knowledge of the anti-colonial struggle beyond the dominant historical narrative. But every year, these former activists get together for a reunion. For young Singaporeans, it's a rare opportunity to witness a generation doing what they can to keep the old flame of the struggle alive. Kirsten Han, who attends this gathering every year, invites us to lunch with the old left.
1: Every year, on the third day of the Lunar New Year, I make my way up to a Chinese restaurant on the fourth floor of an unfashionable shopping complex. The place buzzes with elderly diners. Circular tables seating 10 each are crammed in to make room for everyone. This year, I count 59 tables, even more than previous gatherings. Spirits are high as old friends shake hands and wish each other a Happy New Year. -year 65-year-old Eddie Neal hovers by the entrance. Armed with a seating plan, he cheerfully directs new arrivals to their tables.
2: Do you know why they're called the old left? They've all been imprisoned before. Many were arrested during Operation Cold Store or in the
3: 1950s. These
2: people are the pioneers of the leftist movement.
1: As Eddie says, most of the luncheon's attendees were part of Singapore's Chinese-speaking anti-colonial leftist movement in the 1950s and 60s. They were student activists, union workers, or politicians who organised against the British Colonial Administration, as well as mobilising for causes such as labour rights. When the People's Action Party split in 1961, they supported the left-wing faction that went on to form the Barisan Socialist Party. But their activism came at a cost. While some had been detained without trial by the British, many were later also arrested by the People's Action Party, or PAP. In one such spate of arrests, known as Operation Coldstore, Store, that took place in 1963, over 112 leftists were accused of involvement in a communist conspiracy and detained on the grounds of national security. This effectively destroyed political opposition to the PAP, which still remains in power today. The story of these leftists has since been left out of the establishment historical narrative.
2: The mainstream media doesn't report on them because there's a conflict with our political policy. The leftist politics aren't aligned with
3: the
4: mainstream, but it's OK. The authorities have closed an eye and given us some time and space for our activity.
1: 80-year-old Lim chun Hyung is part of the organising committee for this year's lunch. In the early 1960s, She'd been a member of the Student Union of Nanyang University, a now-defunct private Chinese tertiary institution. Some students, like her, were arrested and detained, others expelled for alleged political subversion. In 1964, the year we were about to graduate, the government sent a big squad of police to come arrest us at Nanyang University. So we were arrested in 1964, but released before the Lunar New Year in 1965. Some were detained, some were expelled. The government expelled them, so many were expelled from Nanyang University, hundreds of them. Even at Nyian Polytechnic, too, many were expelled.
5: Most of us have
1: suffered. It's my fifth year attending this annual lunch. As a young Singaporean educated long after Chinese language instruction had been phased out, this gathering of elders gives me a glimpse of a Singapore politically and linguistically different from the hometown I know. I hadn't learned much about Operation Coastal in school. I merely remember being told that our first Prime Minister, Lee Guan Yu, had to deal with the communists in the interests of Singapore's security and development. Other incidents of detention without trial were similarly whitewashed from the history textbooks. Documentation efforts estimate that between 1950 to 2015, over 2,000 people have been detained without trial. But this harsh reality is largely forgotten in Singapore today. The senior citizens at this lunch, though, still remember. Some have spent a decade or more in detention, the best years of their youth wasted behind bars. While the dominant historical narrative celebrates Lee Kuan Yew and his allies, this gathering is a chance for old comrades to meet up and reminisce. On top of a multi-course meal, there are photo slideshows and music every year. A firm favourite is an old song of the struggle. Unity is strength. As people dine and sing, Terry Shu stands against a pillar near the stage. The chief editor of the independent news website, The Online Citizen, is here today with his camera gear. He says he's here to record the event for the OLEF's archive.
6: I think it's really inspiring. Uh, inspiring to see how, uh, how many of them actually start to, start to come up. Uh, over the years because um, if, you, if you look back um, say five six or ten years ago they, they, they all the way had this but it's only in recent years they start to come in force back then it's like less than 100 or, and now you have like 500 coming out so uh, somehow or another uh, many of them start to feel that uh, they no longer have the sense of fear that they'll be imprisoned again as what they had
1: Singapore is known for its political stability, by which people often mean the lack of political conflict or change. Singaporeans are taught to avoid activism, which is seen as destructive. Politics is portrayed as something to be left to the elite, with little room for the involvement of ordinary citizens. Watching the old left, though, gives me a different view of my country. Instead of the linear narrative drilled into me in school and through the mainstream media, I discover a richness and complexity that broadens my own imagination of the future.
6: If you ask me, like, why is it important for uh, young Singaporeans to be aware of this? Uh, it's really to know that uh, Singaporeans are passionate uh, about things and willing to uh, fight for it, uh, even at the cost of their own uh, self-interest. Uh, and, and it's not what people think that it's. Uh, Singaporeans are like selfish or the only thing ever centered. Of course, maybe we could consider that it's something that's being so called ingrained in, into us through the years of um, education, indoctrination, or whatever. Not yeah. So it, it's it's really good. It's really good for youngsters if there's a chance to attend and see all these elder folks
1: hidden away in an old restaurant, unknown to most Singaporeans. This once a year meetup holds a significance beyond a mere reunion of old friends. For those of us from the younger generation who are lucky enough to attend, it is a lesson in history, not as taught in textbooks, but as it's been lived by these old school activists. Oh,
0: That report was brought to you by Kirsten Han in Singapore. Vietnam is currently experiencing a boom in tourism. Last year, the country welcomed over 15 million international visitors, while a fast-growing economy has created a robust domestic tourism market. But while this is generating revenue for Vietnam, some rural destinations are struggling to cope with the sudden surge in visitors. Sapa, a town in the mountains of northwest Vietnam, is a prime example where the concurrent wave of interest has impacted the lives of the locals and ethnic minorities working in tourism. Michael Tsitarsky travels to Sapa to see how this rural farming community has changed into one of Vietnam's must-see tourist destinations.
4: Located up in the Hoang Lien Son Mountains, nearly 400 kilometers north of Hanoi, Sapa is famed for its terraced rice paddies and small villages populated by ethnic minorities. On a clear day, jagged mountains are visible from almost anywhere in town. Visitors can easily hike into verdant valleys where kids shout hello at newcomers and farm animals outnumber vehicles, or try scaling Mount Fansipan, the highest peak in Vietnam. Thanks in part to the completion of an expressway linking nearby Lao Gai City to Hanoi in late 2014, the town is undergoing a massive construction boom. Roads have been torn up, hotels are quickly being thrown up on top of each other in competition for views, and a cable car has been built to the peak of Fansipan. On weekends, Sapa's central square is packed with noisy tour groups. Buses, dump trucks, and other huge vehicles rumble down the streets many of which are in the long process of being repaved. It's an ugly sight, and an extremely loud one as well. Outside of town, however, the region's minority group villages and their agricultural ways of life remain largely unchanged. Tourism is booming in Vietnam. In 2018, the country welcomed over 15 million international visitors, up nearly 20% compared to the previous year. Domestic tourism is growing, with the country's fast-rising middle-class and ever-expanding airline network allowing more people to explore their own country than ever before. This is putting intense pressure on Vietnam's popular destinations, with beautiful, time-capsulesque villages contrasting with crowded, noisy cities and towns. There's nothing to see or do. It's never been about the town. It's always been about the villages. That's Phil Houlihan, one of the founders of Ethos, a community-oriented tourism company that has been working around Sapa for 21 years. So, I mean, you 90-odd villages, 700 kilometers squared
3: of, of land, a massive national park. The national park hasn't changed. The villages on the whole haven't changed. The culture on the whole hasn't changed. The town has changed radically.
4: Phil and his wife, Hua, say many visitors who don't do proper research leave Sapa unhappy, and they share these opinions online. Travel message boards discussing the town are dominated by complaints about the garbage, noise, crowds, and construction. But many of the local ethnic minorities work in the area's tourism industry. If visitors stop coming, this could have real consequences for countless livelihoods. Ethos employs guides from groups such as the Hmong and Red Yao and focus their tours on minority group villages. Vietnam is home to 53 recognized ethnic minority groups who make up roughly 20 million of the country's population of 95 million. These groups are mostly concentrated in these Northwest Mountains as well as the Central Highlands. One of Sapa's main draws is the cultures of these groups. But the largest financial rewards of the town's popularity largely go to ethnic Vietnamese.
3: And the simple reality is, I mean, the town now, uh, all the businesses are Vietnamese-owned, everything. Uh, 90% of the area is ethnic minority, but over 90% of the employment is for the Vietnamese. You book a, a tour in Hanoi, Vietnamese guide, Vietnamese restaurant, Vietnamese homestay, well, no locals make money from that.
4: As a result, many ethnic minority women resort to selling handicrafts on the streets of Sapa or following hikers on their trips into the valleys, hoping they can make a sale there. This is another common complaint among travelers, and signs in central Sapa warn visitors not to buy anything from people on the streets. According to Phil, many of these hawkers don't have a choice. So
3: their innovative approach is, well, if I can't grow enough rice to live off, I need to feed my children. Uh, I can't get a job in a hotel or restaurant, Mm -hmm. so I'll sell. And we write on TripAdvisor, Sabah's beautiful, but local people are really annoying. Well, local people are trying to survive.
4: Lo Ti Chu is a 23-year-old black Hmong woman who has been with Ethos for four years. She sees tourism as a necessity, but only up to a point.
1: Good thing is many tourists coming, and the people in the village easier to make money. But the bad thing is... If many tourists come in and then everything is changed, more hotel, more
4: restaurant. When asked what they would be doing if they weren't employed as guides, Chu and her colleague, Xiang-Ti Ka, said they would be back in their native village, barely scraping by on subsistence farming in a rugged region with hot summers, freezing winters, and little arable land. Tourism has given them, and the other ethnic minority guys working around Sapa, an opportunity to learn English, make a decent income, and escape the poverty of nearby villages. For business owners like Hua and Phil, the question is how long this industry will continue to support guides such as Chu and Ka. Domestic visitor numbers might continue to grow, but the area could take a hit in the eyes of foreign travelers, and Vietnamese tourists generally prefer package tours involving the cable car over small hiking companies.
3: And if tourism is managed properly here, people will be coming here for a century. There are people who keep coming because it's a place that grabs your heart and people enjoy it. If it's poorly managed, it'll be the same as everywhere else in Vietnam.
0: This report was brought to you by Michael Tatarski in Ho Chi Minh City. Despite having had a history of strong matriarchs, concepts of feminism and gender justice are still relatively new to Cambodia. People often mistakenly believe that feminists are seeking to exclude men in their quest to promote women's interests. Eng Chandi of the NGO Gender and Development for Cambodia, though, says that feminists are simply working towards equality and justice for all. I sat down with Chandi in Kuala Lumpur to talk about the challenges faced by her organization in advocating for gender equality and justice in a politically sensitive climate. Okay, Chandi, thank you for joining us today. Uh, You're a feminist in Cambodia. What, What does that mean to be a feminist in Cambodia?
5: The term feminist is kind of new in Cambodia context. So when we hear the word feminist in our local language, people tend to feel like we exclude men but actually um, for us as a feminist in Cambodia, the definition for us, it's mean equality of human being. Right. That's what we mean. But um, it's been challenging using the word feminist in the context of Cambodia. We cannot translate it, um, we cannot localize that word easier in Cambodia.
0: So before 2000 then, there wasn't any sort of feminist movement as we understand it today.
5: There was, but we did not really recognize it um, even during the genocide period or even during the French colonial. There was the uh, movement of women joining in the army, working to um, demand remain independent from French. But the thing is, no one understand that it is the feminist movement. No one understand that it is the power of women. So we did not really recognize that um, feminist was happening during that time. Okay,
0: so and your organization is Gender and Development for Cambodia. Can you tell us a, a bit about what you do?
5: Well, our mission is to achieve gender equality in Cambodia and social uh, justice for everyone. But uh, we have three main units uh, working to promote gender equality. The first one is advocacy and networking. Um, basically, we advocate to mainstream gender in every existing policy and also laws in Cambodia to make sure that government of Cambodia put gender perspective into their every of their decisions making policies and law the second unit is about capacity building so capacity building is to make sure that um uh, in Cambodia or everyone every organization and also as well as the government understand about gender concept and the third uh, unit is a, it's called Cambodian men network it is a unique thing about our organization. Normally, um, in Cambodia, if it is called gender organization, they only have the unit working with women rights or LGBT. But for, uh, for Gatsy, the short name of my organization it's called Gatsy, when um, we work, we always understand about the role of men. I men engagement to end violence against women and to promote women in leadership that is why we help uh, Cambodian men at work
0: so what are the some some of the more unique challenges or the most urgent challenges that Cambodia faces
5: so there are so many um, challenges but uh, a few challenge the first one is about political situation in Cambodia right now that we are working even we work for gender issue um, it sound like we are working to promote equality between men and women but why environmental, uh, why political environment affect our work is because working with women, we also want to work with women in politics. So if we as an organization uh, working to promote women empowerment from the opposite party, we will be labelled as the opposite party um, supporter. So it is very hard for us to maintain ourselves at the as a neutral ngo working with both post polit- uh, opposite political party and also uh, the ruling party and another thing is about the land rights movement that happening in Cambodia from the 2007 before that government of Cambodia supported gender movement in Cambodia a lot but after the year of 2007 that um, there were so many women got, got on the street protest and do demonstration um, to demand the, their land rights the government of Cambodia tend to understand about the power of women, and um, they t- they kind of get threatened by the pow- that kind of power. So they started to restrict the movement of gender um, organization.
0: Right. So for for the benefit of our audience, right, just a, a bit of context. Of course, most recently last year, we uh, you had a, a general election in Cambodia. But most of the main opposition parties were not able to run, right, for various reasons. And uh, the current prime minister, Hun Sen, who has been in power a very, very long time now, was returned to power with um, a massive, massive majority in government. So that's the kind of circumstance you're you're operating in. Uh, Have you managed to um, gain some traction, get some success working in this situation?
5: There is. Mm -hmm. I cannot just only criticize the government of Cambodia. I also um, appreciate of what they are trying to have uh, to build gender equality in Cambodia too. But what disappoints me is the slow progress, Mm. so slow. Like, I don't know how to tell you how slow it is. Right now in Cambodia, um, the situation of women in leadership is is kind kind of worrisome for us. Um, we want more women in the polit- in the political area, and we want we want more women in the leadership role. But the thing is, when they are in the le- leadership positions, a lot of them are in the system of corrupt, or corrupt like corrupt system. Okay. If you look at to the uh, National Assembly of Cambodia, they're only twenty point thirty three percent of women are holding position there among one hundred and twenty five members. But a lot of them are old women. And when we ask them, why don't we have young women in that position? They always say like, there are no qualified young women or there are not mm. many young women wanted to be in that position too. Not just only at the sub-national level, but also at the uh, national level too.
0: What, what are, What's the broader societal perception of feminism in Cambodia?
5: Um, recently... My organization is um, doing a research about public perception on women in leadership. We asked people at the grassroots level about how do you think about women at the national level? It means like at the assembly. You know what they said? They said like, oh, I want 50-50%. It means like equal men and women. That sounds great. That sounds great. But then we asked them the question, how about village? Like village chief, the village leader. It's means the one who work like, closely with them, not at the national level, but at the grassroots level. Zero percent mentioned about women. They just say like we one male as the village chief. In 2013, um, the research mentioned about rap case, about the sexual behavior of men. One in five men admitted that they have rape. They're committing the rape crime.
0: One in five?
5: One in five. But My God. Only forty-four percent of them get charged, criminal charge.
0: And do you also uh, lobby or try and change policy at the village level and talk to village chiefs, or is it mostly at the national level with the national parliament?
5: We did not have the po- We do not have the power to change uh, the policy at the grassroots level by ourselves. But we are working with network in order to collect evidence to raising awareness for people, they always have the challenges to organize gender awareness, domestic violence awareness in their um, community because they do not have budget to do it. So we touch them have to do advocacy in order to talk with the national level to demand on gender-responsive budgeting.
0: So what, what are your hopes for Cambodia? Do you think the situation will get better for women in Cambodia?
5: I know it will get better because we have been working so hard and we want to have like fast progress, um, not as slow as right now.
0: Thank you, Chandi. Listening to you today, I'm really impressed by the strength and sophistication of the women's rights movement in Cambodia and I'm full of confidence that things are going to get better for Cambodia's women.
5: Thank you so much and hopefully uh, the message can spread out.
0: That was an interview with Eng Chandi, the coordinator for the Cambodian NGO, Gender and Development for Cambodia. In recent years, the fishing industry in Thailand has been described as modern-day slavery. Men are often kept on fishing boats for months, or sometimes years on end, and forced to carry out grueling work for little to no pay. International press coverage and attention has sparked an outcry and pushed the Thai government to work towards putting a stop to exploitation and abuse within the industry. But while attempts are laudable, there are many who question its effectiveness. The need and desire for cheap labour is deeply entrenched in the system, and many obstacles lie in the regulator's way. James Rose, a corporate ethics consultant, reflects upon what needs to be done
2: for the work to gain further traction. I stood to look across the harbour in Samutsukun, and I saw the slave ships bobbing serenely in the water. This sleepy fishing town about an hour south of Bangkok is one of the centres of the slave fisherman trade and is one place from where these old, battered-looking trawlers ply their sometimes dubious trade. On these rust buckets, men are forced, sometimes after being press-ganged, to work perhaps years at sea, where they work 24-hour days and are regularly denied payment. Then, when the work is done, they may be dumped on isolated islands and just left there. Despite my many years working in human rights and in social justice spaces, I was horrified and dismayed by the raw evil that underpins the modern slave trade. It's brutal and inhuman and it destroys virtually everyone it touches. Is enough being done to stop this modern day atrocity? On the one hand, the Thai government is trying to step up to the problem, and it needs to. The Thai fishing sector returned export earnings of US $5.5 billion in 2017, making it a major foreign currency earner for the country where food exports account for 10% of total exports. Thailand is also the world's largest exporter of tuna. The size and reach of the Thai industry alone confirms that this is a global problem. The seafood produced by slave fishermen may well be in your Friday fish and chips. The Thai government has told all trawler owners to ensure there is adequate communications technology on every ship and to allow all workers to freely contact families while on board. They banned fishermen under the age of 18 from working and have sought to mandate a system of electronic bank transfers for wages to allow verification that the fishermen are in fact being paid. Also involved are NGOs like the Thai and Migrant Fishers Union with whom I spent some time in Samutsukun. NGOs like this and others monitor satellites to track ships at sea for long periods. Long sea times are often a sign that they are using slave labour, as ships can stay at sea for years. As they transship their haul to larger boats who take the produce back to shore. As a result, Thailand recently stepped up a notch of the US's Trafficking in Persons Index, which has implications for US trade agreements with given countries. But the problem still remains. Obstacles for regulators exist as the system relies on regular inspections and policing, which is expensive and difficult to maintain. To stamp out slave labour and trafficking in the fishing sector we must also look to the companies themselves and ask whether they are doing enough, especially given they are the ones which are engaging in and benefiting from such reprehensible labour abuses. The World Fisheries sector has sought to gather the wagons. The Sustainable Seafood Task Force, the SST, is an ostensibly multi-sector coalition designed to nut out such issues as slave labour and to adopt industry-wide approaches. To put it mildly, it appears to be falling short in such aims. I reached out to Steve Trent of the UK-based Environmental Justice Foundation, who implied the SST was a bit of a graveyard, a place where anti-slavery solutions go to die. He told me, and I quote, "...progress towards identifying solutions and implementing them across fishing fleets and across processing factories has been far too slow and remains inadequate." Such groups are a reaction to reputational problems well practiced by other industries in strife over human rights and or environmental issues. While some are better than others, none have solved the problems they set out to overcome. What many, if not all, such bodies fail to do is put the workers, those at the centre of the problem, at the centre of the solution. A few companies in the garment sector, such as Adidas, have supported a concept known as human rights defenders. This method involves companies actively supporting social justice oriented members of the community in which they operate so they can champion human rights improvements from the grassroots level. Such a concept certainly has its merits, but it could also end up being a case of large, rich and influential corporations obliging impoverished and powerful local communities to do the hard work for them. Now, perhaps it's time for a global body dedicated to policing multinational corporations a more engaged form of the UN for the private sector.
0: That was brought to you by James Rose in Bangkok. And that's it for this episode. We'd like to thank our contributors, Kirsten Han, Michael Tataski, Ng Chandi and James Rose for making this episode possible. Be sure to tune in to New Narratives' Political Agenda next week, our fortnightly podcast on current affairs in Singapore. And check out our website at newnarrative.com for more stories from Southeast Asia. And if you enjoy what we're doing, please do support our work by subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscription start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's just one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa!